Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Get Up and Do Something Uplift podcast series. In today's episode, we will be discussing life lessons to learn from octogenarians, nonagenarians, and centenarians, or people that have lived into their 80s, 90s, and 100s. There's a lot to learn from older generations on how to live a long and successful life, so we will be exploring some of their wisdom today. We were having some trouble with audio on our end, so please excuse the technical hiccups in this episode. The questions I asked can be found in this episode's description. Joining us for this discussion is developmental psychologist, Dr. Adam Davey. So without further ado, let's jump into it. What's the worst that could happen? All right. Welcome, Dr. Davey, and thank you for joining us today. For those in our audience who are not familiar with you, can you give a little bit of background about who you are and what work you've been doing related to octogenarians? Sure. Well, I am a developmental psychologist and biostatistician by training, um, and uh, I'm a professor in behavioral health and nutrition, and I have secondary appointments in the Center for Bioinformatics and Computational Biology, as well as the Data Science Institute. So um, if, it, if it affects old people or is, is quantitative in nature, then you've got my attention. Um, and uh, I've been at Delaware for five and a half years. I came here uh, from Temple University, where I was uh, founding chair of the Department of Epidemiology and Biostatistics. Um, spent a couple of years before that at a private research institute in Horsham, what used to be the uh, Philadelphia uh, Geriatric Center, and uh, started my career many, many years ago at the University of Georgia. So uh, I've been at this for a while, studying studying older adults the entire time. Um, and I have to tell you, your questions are all uh, great and about people who are octogenarians, people in their 80s. But in our studies, uh, the octogenarians are actually our young control groups. And most of our interest is in people who've made it all the way to 100 plus centenarians. Okay. Thank you for thank you for saying that. I had no idea that. Um, what first got you interested in working with this population? Strangely, what first got me interested in this population was working with kids. Um, I was I was a psychology student at the University of Toronto, um, and uh, when I took a developmental psychology class, we're going through all of the all of the uh, the content and the labs. And at three months of age, a child can do this. At six months of age, it can do this. Eighteen months, it can do this. I, wow, that is so boring. That is so boring because you know if someone is. 75 years old, you don't know if they're in a nursing home, you don't know if they're sitting on a Supreme Court, uh, you don't know if they're the President of the United States, you know, uh, past President of the United States. So um, one of the things that really interested me is that as we get older, all of our experiences and all of our choices um, sort of separate us, make us a little bit more uh, different from others who might uh, be similar in age. Um, and so I was really interested in all of those factors because those are the kinds of things that really are what behavioral health and nutrition is all about. All of those risk and protective factors, all those health behaviors, all those ways that we do or do not take proper care of ourselves or try to find ways to take even better care of ourselves are really what shape our experience across our entire lifespans. And I thought that was pretty interesting. Super interesting. Yeah, I mean, that's what gets a lot of people interested in this about, I guess. Yeah. Um, can you tell us about what you've learned about diet and this activity kind of thinking about the health behaviors? Um, diet and physical activity level of this population that you work with and kind of what took them to be the age that they are and how successful they are at their age. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things that I will tell you is if you ask 100 centenarians the secret of their long lives, you're going to learn exactly 100 secrets. None of them has any idea how on earth they got there. Okay. Not a clue. <laughs> um, and uh, 
it's it's very very interesting because um, when we did our first centenarian study, it was in Georgia, and if you asked them about their diets, for example, it was a ton of high fat dairy, you know, nothing but whole milk. They never had anything else, you know. Uh, they ate a lot of eggs. They ate a lot of of, uh, of pork products, you know. Um, that's what they've always eaten. And then anything else, I'll tell you. Oh, I, I have a cigarette every day, or I have a shot of whiskey, or you know, I I don't let things get me down, you know. Um, yeah. All that's kind of nonsense. So um, you know, all of those things really are important. Um, but what is important and why is important, I think, is is changing very very quickly. So with our study, uh, every one of those centenarians was the only one, the only person surviving from 5,000 kids born the same day they were born. One hmm. in 5,000 people who were born 100 years ago became centenarians in our study. But something interesting has been happening, not just in the United States, but all across the world. Um, when we're born, we have a life expectancy. You know, how long on average will babies born today live? And say it's around 78 years of age. It might be different for, for men and women. It might be different for whites, African-Americans, you know, different, different racial and ethnic groups, for example. It might, it might also differ depending on our socioeconomic status, socioeconomic status, where we're born, all these kinds of things, right? But we have a life expectancy at birth, and it's about 78 years, say, plus or minus, right? But what happens when we get to be 78? Are we out of life expectancy? Do we have to give it back? No, we have a life expectancy at every single age. So we have a life expectancy at birth. We have a life expectancy at 50. We have a life expectancy at 65. We have a life expectancy at 75. And we have a life expectancy at 100. And it's about two years, even then. Mm -hmm. So half of the centenarians uh, lived about two years. Half of them didn't quite live that long. And so what happens is we have a life expectancy at birth. But as we live our lives, life expectancy is actually increasing. And it's increasing by quite a lot, which means that we gain another 2.2 years for every 10 years that we survive. If you add up those 2.2 years over 10 decades, you've got 22 years. What's 78 plus 22? <gasps> it's 100, <laughs> which, means that, which means that a kid born today has about a 50-50 chance, all else equal, of becoming a centenarian. Think about that. 0.02% of the population compared to 50% of the population. The things that mattered to get centenarians through the past 100 years might be completely different than the kinds of things that will get babies today to their 100th birthdays. And so um, as, as more and more people are living not just to old age, which at one point in time was kind of unusual, um, but now as it becomes normative or typical to live to 100 years, we have a whole different uh, set of experiences. We have a whole different set of social concerns that we need to address. So Sherry Willis, who was a very famous developmental psychologist, lifespan developmental psychologist, thought about the older adult populations, say 65 plus, in terms of three groups. She thought about 65 to 74s, 75 to 84s, and then 85 plus, okay? And she called them the, the go-go's, the slow-go's, and the no-go's. And what she meant by that was that something different happens once we reach about 85 years of age. We are now part of the oldest old. And what we know is that there are a lot of ways to get there, and there are a lot of ways to hang there. Um, one of the early centenarian researchers, researchers, Thomas Pearls, did a study in Boston area. And he found that there were three groups of centenarians in terms of chronic illness. 
okay, chronic disease, um, which become more common, more prevalent as we get older, especially so in the oldest old population. And he found that there were three groups of centenarians. There was one group who reached the age of 100 free from any meaningful chronic disease, okay? There was another group that had uh, survived to 100, but they were free from chronic disease until they were about 80. And then there was another group that had had chronic disease even before their 80th birthday. And so had lived for more than 20 years with chronic diseases. And he called them uh, the escapers, the delayers, and the survivors, okay? Um, and um, they're about a third in each group, which means that for any kind of characteristic that you wanna think about, whether it's something fairly simple like visual or, uh, or auditory impairment, then about a third of 85 plus might have that. And if you're thinking about something like cognitive impairment, something that might go along with dementia, say, it's about a third of octogenarians who are going to fall into that category. By the time you get to be about a centenarian, it's about a 50-50% chance for each of those things. And so centenarians hit age 100 with a tremendous amount of frailty and chronic disease on average. Not everyone does, of course. You can always think of those incredible, uh, you know, successful people who are just as active, um, you know, uh, as they've ever been by the time they hit 100. Um, but, you know, that's a smaller and smaller group, the older and older we get. And so we, it's more and more difficult, I think, uh, every year that we survive to sort of continue on with that, that healthy, uh, healthy expectation and healthy lifespan. That is fascinating. Thank you. Um, how how big of a part, just in your research, mm -hmm. how big of a part do you feel like um, these health behaviors play into living a long life versus genetics? Has that come up in your research? Yeah, of course it does. Absolutely. That's a great question. Um, I mean, ultimately, ultimately, um, our genetics uh, are what prepare us, you know, for the environment that we're going or fail to prepare, prepare us for the environment that we're going to face. Um, you know, so that is always important. But when we go looking for the effects of genetics as genetics, it turns out that most of the time those things are relatively small, you know? Um, and it's not because genetics doesn't matter, except it, it's more that we don't really understand how genetics matter yet. And so we're in the process of trying to really understand that. And so there's our, our DNA, our genotype, um, and that, um, is what, what tells our bodies what proteins to make and things like that. It's basically, it's, it's controlling the, the, the machinery of our cells, mm -hmm. right? Um, and we are biomechanical machines. So, you know, we have to identify when damage has occurred. We have to be able to repair that damage, you know, sort of maintain homeostasis, maintain a balance um, in terms of the relationship between us and our environments, right? Mm -hmm. And as we get older, that becomes more increasingly challenging, you know, um, because just through wear and tear, you know, you think about something like arthritis. Arthritis is an example of what we refer to as primary aging, by which we mean if everyone lived sufficiently long, would they get arthritis, yes or no? And the answer is almost certainly yes. Hmm. Okay, so just through wear and tear, our body's ability to repair itself is outpaced by our environment's ability to damage our bodies and our own ability to damage our bodies. You know, yeah. <laughs> um, if, you've ever, if you've ever seen someone who, whose job uh, whose career was something that involved a lot of manual labor, you know, you'll see that it has taken a toll on their bodies. It's deformed mm -hmm. their hands and, you know, spines and everything else. If they work with, with harsh chemicals, for example, it can affect their brains and, and you know, the different, different aspects of functioning, nervous system functioning. Um, 
But there's another piece to the genetics, which is called epigenetics. And through a process of methylation in humans, um, environmental characteristics can help turn our genes, specific genes on or off. Mm -hmm. um, and so in a disease like cancer, for example, it has totally disrupted in our bodies and every cell of our bodies that is affected, which genes are turned on and which genes are turned off. Okay, and so it affects our ability to sort of regulate our bodies. So genetics turn out to be important both in terms of our genotype, but also increasingly in terms of our epigenome. And so that's something that I'm looking at right now with our centenarians. I'm just starting into that process. Um, but I think that, that in the next five to 10 years, we'll find that the epigenetics really play a critical role in helping us understand the relationship between environment and chronic disease for individuals. And we might even learn that, that these effects are different depending on someone's genotype. And so there's an interaction, gene by environment interaction there. And to the extent that we can try and characterize that, that's really important. At the same time, um, in a couple of the studies that came out of our centenarian study, we found it was very interesting because there are some relatively common genotypes. You might have it, I might have it, or you know, there might be a few of them. But having a specific combination, an uncommon combination of common genotypes really turns out to be important for, uh, for survival. And so individuals who have um, a very uncommon combination of three genotypes are eight times more likely than people without that uncommon genotype to become centenarians. And so genes turn out to be really important. We just don't yet know how. Now, at the same time, um, from, from your podcast perspective, environment is absolutely critical. And let me tell you one of the most important ways that, that turns out to be true. Yeah, please. I told yeah. you already. You got a hundred hundred secrets on aging, right? <laughs> um, when, when we did when we did work with some uh, some groups in in South Korea, um, they were looking for so called blue zones, area where where areas of the country where they had more centenarians in this case than than they would expect. And you know, it's other places like Sardinia, for example, Osaka and Japan, Okinawa and Japan. You know, um, where centenarians are more common than other places, right? In Korea, there were two regions that had tons of centenarians. One of them was very mountainous. People did a lot of physical activity, they did it at high altitude, they did a lot of climbing, they were very active, vigorously active um, throughout their whole lives. That makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. Other area was a fishing village, sea level, pancake flat, diet rich in fish and seafood. Okay, yeah. so there's more than one way to get there. There's probably a lot of ways, but the one thing that I think that all centenarians tend to share in common is that they're kind of like Ben Franklin disciples, you know, all things, moderation and all things, all things, moderation and moderation and all things, you know what I mean? Yeah. They're yeah. Very, very moderate. Um, about 20% were former smokers. Okay. We even had a couple of current smokers, <laughs> but they maybe smoked a cigarette or two a week. They'd never smoked more than that. You know, um, if they used alcohol, they used it very, very sparingly. You know, they stayed away from a lot of processed foods. They, you know, they grew up in a time when, when you know, we didn't have tons of technology and so on. And so they were always very active. One of the, uh, one of my favorite centenarians, um, he was a man who lived to be about 108. And until the past couple, the last couple of years of his life, he walked five miles a day. Hmm. Now, I don't walk five miles every day. I sure could if I had <laughs> I the know. time, you know, but, but, you know, he's still doing this. He had yeah. two personal trainers. You know, when he was a young person, he lived in Manhattan. He used to walk to the airport with his suitcases. He didn't take a taxi. He didn't take, he walked, 
I don't care if it's 10 or 15 miles there. I need the exercise. I'm just going. I'm going to think. Yeah. I'm going to walk. You know what I mean? Um, and so moderation really turns out to be key. You know, you could do just about anything. Don't do too much of it. You know, <laughs> there's some things you know you should stay away from them. It's okay to stay away from them. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, they weren't really so worried about things, but everything they did, they tended to do very moderately. And so I think that tends to uh, to reduce the opportunities to to you know do injury to ourselves. So I think that's a that's an important thing. Yeah, that's a very good life lesson. And moderation can be hard, but I think that's that's an important thing to keep in mind for anybody. Um, sure. I'm keeping your time in mind, so I'm gonna let's see. Um, you kind of touched on that already, but. In their teens and thirties, our audience. I'm so sorry, Kate. You just faded out. Can you say oh, that one more time? Yeah, of course. Sorry about that. What are some practices that people in their late thirties, our audience, should start doing now in order to live happily into their eighties, nineties, and hundreds? Sure, sure. There, there's two things I can tell everyone. Um, the first is choose your parents wisely. Um, going back to the genetics, yeah, um, we're we're born we're born with with the potential and opportunity, you know. Um, but I think that I think that that a couple of things are really really important. The first is that it is never too early to start taking care of yourself and start planning, um, because a lot of people don't expect to live as long as they're going to, you know. If you think you're only going to live ten years in retirement, plan on living thirteen at least. Right. Um, and don't forget that, you know, if you hit 65 or 67 or 70 and you retire, you still have a life expectancy. It's almost 20 years. So if you add 2.2 years or 4.4 or, uh, years to that, you still might have another quarter century in you. So plan for longer than you think to. OK, um, mm, that's and, very good uh, advice. <laughs> it's it's kind of like if you're if you're running a 5K, you know. Pace yourself as though you're running a 10K. If you're running it, if you're, if you're you know, running a 10K, plan as though you're running a half marathon. You know, just plan a little, a little longer than you think, because chances are good you're still going to be here. Um, and then I think that the the second thing is is the flip side. It's never too late to start taking care of yourselves. And so um, any any kind of health behavior, uh, any kind of positive health behavior change that you might make, uh, you're going to start to see some benefits almost right away from any of those things. So it's never too early to start. It's never too late to start. Those are the two most important things I think I would, I would bear in mind. Thank you for those. Those are, yeah, those are great. Um, in what ways has your life changed by studying and working with this generation? Have you made health behavior changes because of this? Sure. Yeah. Another really <laughs> good question. Um, yeah. I think that one of the things that I bear in mind um, that, that comes directly from working with this population is that it is a lot harder work to become a member of the oldest old than I thought it ever could be. I never realized just how much work it would be. Um, a few years ago, it's, well, all right, don't tell anybody, but it was actually 20 years ago, almost. Your secret's safe with me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and everyone else. And everybody um, else. <laughs> Uh, I heard an interview on the radio one time. It was it was a young person. She was she was so excited. She was interviewing all these centenarians, and every one of them gave her a secret. You know, she was delighted. Oh, I'm going to live forever now, right? She interviewed this one guy. And he was really grumpy. Oh, he was just not interested. And she said, finally, she said, now's the question. I just look forward to asking everyone I talk to the most. You could just see his eyes roll, even though it was radio. You know, what's the secret to your long life? And he pauses and he sighs. He says, well, honey, 
I got to tell you, I guess dying is just not something I'm very good at. <laughs> so humor, humor keeps them going. It does. It yeah. does. I think that I think that it takes a certain tenacity, and I think it takes mm. a certain personality um, to persevere, to keep going, not to give up, not to surrender. There was a very a very famous uh, gerontologist, one of the first generation of gerontologists, who decided he wrote a really interesting paper. I thought that was looking at aging as habituation, a psychological phenomenon of habituation. If we get exposed to the same thing, if I sit here going like this, you think, what is that goof doing, right? But if I just keep doing that through the whole thing, you're not even going to notice after a while. You've habituated to that stimulus, right? And he was saying all of aging is essentially habituation. If we don't actively look for and seek out new opportunities, new challenges, new things that we can experience, it's like we're chasing our tail but we're moving in smaller, ever decreasing circles. And one of the problems with staying in that little circle, staying within your comfort zone, is that you become less able to adapt to the new experiences that you might have to encounter or face. And so one of the things that I try to do every single day, sometimes I forget, sometimes I might do two of them to catch up, you know, but it just sort of influences what I do, is I try to do something a little bit differently every day. And it could be a stupid thing. It could be something like tying my shoes. I'm left-handed. Maybe I'm gonna tie my shoes with my right hand. Maybe I'm gonna tie them with a different knot. Maybe I'm gonna do something differently. Maybe I always put on one shoe ahead of the other shoe. I'm gonna change it up today, you know? I'm always looking for opportunities. I come home from work one way, maybe I'll try a different way, you know? Keep exposing yourself to new experiences. Keep trying to find those opportunities to stay uh, flexible, adaptable, to stay ready for all of the challenges that life is gonna throw your way. Because one of the things I can tell you is that life is gonna throw so many challenges mm -hmm. at you. And the chances are that if you keep trying, you're gonna persevere like nobody's business, you are going to succeed. And after a while, you're not even gonna notice because you're so able to roll with things. You know, you're so able to adapt. You're so, uh, you're so curious um, that you're always looking for and seeking out those new opportunities. So that's one of the things that personally is meaningful to me. I don't have any data on it. I can't tell you if you all do it, you'll live an extra 10 years, but it's something that I find just makes life a little more interesting in the day-to-day -day already. I love that. Yeah, I've, I've heard that um, doing new things I, I, maybe it's just perception, but it of increases your perception of time. It kind of gives you more time. And again, yeah. I don't know the science behind that. Maybe there's some. Yeah. Try it. Try it. Try it. Take notes, you know? Yeah. Oh, I love that. Okay. And before, before I let you go, um, what are the three biggest life lessons you've learned or or maybe just one big life lesson that you can share? I know that, you know, there's a hundred secrets to long life, but um, outside of Swing it up every day and, and doing something new. Do you have any other words of advice you've learned from this population that you can give to our, our audience? Yeah. Um, well, I think that in the grand scheme of things, there are very, it's a very, very small number of things that are really, really important. You know, and if you can if you can focus on those things and worry much less about the other things, that's probably good advice. <laughs> Awesome. Thank you. All right. This was a wonderful chat. Thank you so much for being here. Likewise. Thanks so much, Kate. I really enjoyed talking with you. Have a great afternoon. Thanks. Bye. You too. Bye. Thank you again to Dr. Davey for joining us today and to all of you for listening to this episode on wisdom from older generations. We hope that this discussion today sparked some joy and motivation on how to live a long and healthy life. Be sure to check out other episodes from the Uplift series and tune in next time. From all of us here at Get Up and Do Something, thanks for being here.